Hello, everyone. Let's return back to our um, morning session. So we have another magnificent speaker today. Um, he's a psychoanalyst, a professor, and director of the Center for Study of Decision-Making Uncertainty um, at UCL, part of the Psychoanalysis Unit, which is part of the Division of Psychology, which is part of brain uh, faculty. And indeed, that... Um, complexity of affiliations is also similar to David's complexity of background. Similarly to Mark, he is an interdisciplinary researcher par, par excellence, as you will see in a moment, and I'm pretty sure he will keep us entertained. So he studied economics, medical sociology, and, of course, psychoanalysis. And his book, Minding the Markets, an Emotional Finance View of Financial Instability, which you can find out there, is, as you all probably know, a bestseller, rather famous, um, able to predict financial crises, rises, and the like. So do have a look. It is really fascinating. I've had the privilege of hearing David uh, speak a few times. But I wanted to say that other than us here, and if you like, a psychoanalytically-minded um, audience, David does speak to economists and policymakers, and he leaves them with, with an open mouth. So I'm sure he won't disappoint today. Thank you. Well, thank you. We'll have to see. I think after the last act, it, uh, it's hard to follow. So um, I'm going to do something rather different to Mark in that what I'm interested in is trying to think about the uh, ways in which psychoanalysis can, un can help us to understand, if you like, the social world, the world we actually live in, which has a very considerable influence, of course, upon us. And in this, uh, the starting point for the talk really is clearly that human decision-making is fundamental to individual outcomes, what happens when you make a decision to you, but also to aggregate outcomes, that is, to the economy, etc. But most existing approaches to human decision-making uh, take place in an extremely odd world. It's a world where people are, in effect, omnipotent. That is to say, there are rational individuals who are able to put the right data before they make a decision, to optimize it, avoiding all statistical errors, and to arrive at conclusions. The problem with this particular approach, which dominates psychology, uh, is that it completely ignores what I will call model uncertainty. That is to say, the whether or not the model you can observe in any given set of observations today is in fact going to be the model that generates data in future and therefore allows you to say something about what's going to happen. So if you take a simple example, supposing you are trying to decide today whether to invest in China. There are an awful lot of things you might want to think about. So are you going to build, I don't know, you know a new factory or set up a psychoedic institute in China? There are all kinds of arguments for the way in which China could completely blow up or could be hugely successful. And no amount of uh, statistical optimization can help you with that decision. So what I'm trying to do and trying to bring psychoanalysis to help with is to deal with situations where although you can make a case that a decision is part of some repeatable series and then you could apply statistics, actually the the essence of these decisions is that they are not necessarily part of that. 
in effect, what uh, current decision-making theory does in economics or, or cognitive psychology is turn people into the very opposite of what we've just been hearing from Mark. They are, in fact, computers. And they don't have affects, clearly. They don't have bodies. And so they do not experience... I mean, you can make a very simple thing about what the whole of what I'm going to say is that a human being, as you've heard from Mark, experiences things, above all feelings, as you are thinking and making decisions. The computer does not. And the essential message here is that that makes a very big difference. Centrally, it makes a difference to two very important things which are central from uh, psychoanalytic thinking, which is current decision-making ignores the role of narrative. I mean, I'm using the word narrative, but obviously if we're psychoanalysts, we talk about narrative as ultimately resting on unconscious uh, fantasy. And... Uh, also, of course, the role of emotion. It also ignores social interaction so that most decision-making theories take place where the different people are atomistic and they have no relationship to one another. In fact, one of the basic things that humans do is copy each other. This is one of the most effective ways of learning and, and, of, and of doing anything. But beyond that, the whole point is that, that uh, we have evolved as we have from the very beginning of uh, our particular strain of uh, humanity for, in social environments. And the, the time when the brain started changing in a big way is associated also with the time when people started to hunt together and so needed to be able to say, you know, I'll meet you over by that tree and then we'll get the tiger or whatever, which is a completely not an individual decision. This is very, very serious that the world is based on the kind of thinking that we have now because it gives us poor understanding and it also misleads policy. And, of course, the financial crisis was the big example of all this. I began all this work rather before the financial crisis, but since the financial crisis, I've been much more in demand to go and talk to people because, obviously, it's rather difficult to, to argue that uh, financial markets, for example, have nothing to do with emotion after, after what people have seen. And one of the uh, central issues also is as we face issues like climate change and many other issues, uh, including a considerable uncertainty at the moment among economists and, and central banks about really how is the economy working? What is going to happen? So if you look at this particular diagram taken from the IMF, here, here you see the uh, GDP growth just before and since the crisis. And this is the key point here that you see that whether it's the advanced economies for the average or the, or the emerging and developing economies, since the recovery back is flatlined, slightly below. Now, given that there was typically an average increase of around 2%, that compound interest is a very powerful thing, you know. It means that there is a massive under-creation of resources and a major, major problem that, that has hit the, di the different economies. So uh, the, you, you can't really overemphasize the damage done to the world economy and then to people, to welfare, to all the, all the employment prospects and so on uh, created by the financial crisis and the sort of 
stability situation we're now in. And one of the key things is, you know, in different countries, people speak about in relation to their local politicians in local ways, but this is actually a worldwide problem. Okay, I first became interested in all this. Uh, uh, the story is told in, in the books. So I won't go into it too much, but some of you may have heard of PEP, Psychonetic Electronic Publishing. And this was, uh, in 1997, we'd begun this, and it was on a CD. And one day, through the door of my office at UCL, came two people from the leading investment bank at that time in London. And believe it or not, they wanted to buy PEP and wanted to give a lot of money for it and take it over and turn it into a dot-com and use it as a model for publishing. Suffice it to say, they didn't know anything themselves about the Internet about psychoanalysis, which was all the journals we were doing, uh, or publishing. But this didn't stop them asking several million. Well, PEP didn't belong to me, it belonged to the Institute and to the American, so we couldn't really have sold it to them anyway, but we listened to what they had to say, and then afterwards, so you can see on the slide that they came in around here, um, uh, afterwards, the whole thing crashed. And it became... I did economics, as Katya said, in my first degree at Cambridge, and I became interested again in economics and thinking what on earth had been going on. Now, if you look at that, of course, if you're a clinician, you think in terms of a manic structure and then a collapse, obviously. Now, this isn't the first, this is not the first people to, to notice that, but various components of all this became interesting such as the fact that there are always people objecting. So there, are, there were always people in this saying, oh, this is nothing, it won't work. Just as up to the previous, the, the current crash, there were lots of people saying, like Warren Buffett, these new financial instruments are extremely dangerous. So it's not that people aren't saying there's a problem, it's that people are not hearing there's a problem. And of course, this is a familiar problem to all of you insofar as your clinicians. So we've gone on from there to develop some core concepts that came out of that uh, uh, work, which is in this book. And I'm just going to introduce you the core concepts so you're clear how this comes out of psychoanalysis. Because most of what I'm going to say after that is the kind of presentation that I made, for example, last Thursday to the European Systemic Risk Board and the, and the European Central Bank where I don't actually use psychoanalytic concepts as such because it just confuses the issue. Apart from me, I say, don't know what they mean, right? So uh, the key concept is, is very related to what Mark has already said, is that for me, thinking of any kind involves embodied feeling. And this is demonstrated by large numbers of, of, of studies in, in neuroscience. No. So as, in fact, Bion and others pointed out, or indeed as Freud pointed out, that any kind of thoughts we have are associated with feeling. So this becomes, is a fundamental part of the theory. Secondly, that object relations are, tend to be fundamentally ambivalent. Whether this is created by sort of fundamental instinctual conflicts as the traditional theory, or, as I think more likely, actually, as Mark has kind of set out, by the fact that it's the world that produces conflicts for us that we have to deal with is not, for this purpose, particularly important. But that there is, for example, if you think of something like getting married, there are clear 
Uh, it's, it's something which has advantages and disadvantages. We have systems, biological, social, psychological, which help people to do this. And you could describe many of the most important relationships in society being part of an organization, wishing not to be in it, etc., as really fundamental kinds of conflicts. But this idea referred to the fact that all relationships that investors make with the underlying investment is always must be characterized by an unconscious ambivalent object relation. All financial instruments are debt instruments, right? So when you buy them, you become dependent on whoever ultimately is you've, you've lent your money to. So whether it's a very simple thing like you invest in, in your friend's company or a big company, or you take uh, a part of a whole bunch of a thousand mortgages, or you take a synthetic thing that doesn't even have very near it anything particularly real, they're always the same. They are debt contracts, and they put you into a dependent relationship. Now, I don't need to elaborate to you that dependency is a complex psychological phenomenon. The third concept that was introduced was that of fantastic objects, spelt in this uh, psychoanalytic kind way, to really to talk about something which is, is, is fundamental, which is simply the processes through which human beings uh, form these libidinal attachments, going back to the beginning of, uh, of life, in which the object of the attachment becomes perceived and experienced as enormously pleasurable. I, I can't do the nice noises that Mark did, but that's, that's what we're talking about. Uh, and, and the fourth free uh, concept is what I call divided and integrated states. Now, actually, since you know the, the literature, I just mean uh, paranoid schizoid and depressive position. I changed the term because when you start giving, telling journalists about these things in relation to business, the next thing that happens is the headline saying all... Uh, financial people are, are schizophrenic. And uh, that isn't what we mean. We're trying to get way away from that kind of idea. So actually, uh, Mervyn King helped me come up. He was the governor of the Bank of England. helped me come up with these. They're not entirely satisfactory comments and things either, but at least they make sense. So divided and integrated states, and you can just think of them as paranoid schizoid, and, and, but not, of course, as early development, but in, in as, if you like, beyonds P, S, and, and D. And lastly, the concept of group feel. Groupthink is quite well known as a concept, and actually, if you read Janice's book, Janice is a psychologist who introduced groupthink, it's very interesting, in the preface, he actually talks about beyond. That's the end of any talk about beyond or psychoanalysis. But I call it group feel for the, because I think you would agree that it's not really about thinking. People end up thinking the same thing, but the point is they want to feel the same thing as the other people within, with whom they're in a room or whatever. So these are the, the main concepts that I deployed to try and understand markets. And now I want to move on beyond that to where we are today with what we're setting out as a new theory to cover the, uh, what, is, what are called the micro-foundations of economics. So the current micro-foundations of economics are quite simple. Essentially, you get cognitive processes in which all actors who have omnipotent knowledge 
of all time optimize their actions. It's called rational. But the term rational is a wonderful piece of, of um, politics, really. There's nothing rational about it. It's, it's merely that optimization has been de- determined as rational. But it's just a relationship between cognitive processes and then people act. The more advanced system of decision-making theory, which comes from, psych- from cognitive psychology and is what famous, Daniel Kahneman has made famous, is that there are also emotional processes involved and they have some sort of conflictual relationship with cognition. So you have essentially emotion is, can mess up people's thinking, that, but that's all it does. Right? So you have what's called the affectoristic, or you have the endowment effect, or numerous ways of getting bias that come from the uh, emotional system. Uh, co- what I call conviction narrative theory, or CNT, is a different way of thinking about it. In this... There is an an interchange, and I'm not even sure whether there's even a primacy of one over the other, between cognitive and emotional processes, and that will be going on at the different levels, both in, if you like, brain levels, but then at psychological levels and and so on. That that leads to the central idea I'm going to put forward to you, to the notion of conviction narrative. And I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment. But the key point about a conviction narrative is it manages for the individual or the people who are making a decision the whole situation of approach versus avoidance. So this does, I think, go to the, this basic level, uh, if you like, of pleasure, unpleasure, pleasure you approach, uh, uh, unpleasure you avoid. And so the whole point of a conviction narrative is it has to manage in a situation of uncertainty so that if you're going to do something, that is to take action. There has to be a dominance of approach over avoidance emotions generated by the narrative. What that could mean is that there are lots of reasons within the, the, the narrative for doing something, and it also usually means that something is done about the disadvantages. And I am arguing that this is, this is what happens in good decision-making and bad decision-making, but all decision-making under uncertainty essentially involves coming up with a conviction narrative in which approach dominates avoidance. So if we just go from the beginning, the social world is complex and constantly co-evolving. So actually... Uh, it's not just individuals or biology that's been evolving but also the relationship to institutions and institutions themselves and decisions to act are made subjectively in what I call model uncertainty where probabilities are not available in this situation what humans do is draw on their abilities to construct simulations of the future which we can call narratives which are felt now and are very different, as I said earlier, to those in a computer program. Such narratives have three functions. First, they serve an interpretive function. So the information you have available or you you seek to search out, you fit to a prior pattern. And this this is a huge step in economics to just have this first step, because the whole of economics and most of decision science takes the data as given. And of course, if you're doing experimental studies of decision-making, mostly what you do is set the experiment up 
where you give people the information they need to arrive at the correct conclusion or you give them misleading information or whatever and then you watch whether they do or do, do get the right answer. It's completely normative. In real life, part of the whole problem is that you, information is not meaningful in and of itself under complexity and uncertainty, what does the information, for example, about China in my early example really mean? And so there's always an interpretive thing. And actually, and this very much would draw on the work of Carl Friston and people like that, the underlying system is that we fit observations uh, as, as really in order not to have to do this overload of the brain and overload of our... We automatically fit them to a prior pattern until such time as that doesn't seem to work. The sec- and, and that's what a narrative is. So even if you see someone going down the street, for example, a lot of sociological work on it, you see someone going down the street with a, a newspaper under their arm, oh, they've just been to the newsagent. And you don't, you know, they may or may not, right? But that's what, that's what you think. So uh, the second function of narratives is really from imagination that it allows people to picture future outcomes of their possible actions and their impact on, the, on, their, on themselves and others. The third function, and this is really the, the, the new part in this theory, is that narratives support action. That is, they provide a sense of accuracy and conviction about preferred narratives. Now, one of the things that's always been noticed about narratives is that they tend to be convincing. Or, I mean, they're either convincing or not. Let's put it like that way. And, of course, when they're convincing, very often things are left out. So, I mean, a talk like mine or Mark's may to you sound convincing or otherwise to you as you follow along. It's only when you get home and you think, oh, we left that out completely, <laughs> that, you, that you have a different kind of thing. So the function of narrative is, in fact, to close the circle. It is to create a system of causal explanations and, and things like that. And what I'm arguing is that a conviction narrative falls these three functions, and in particular, it's support action. So that even though you don't know what's going to happen, you're willing to jump. So in a sense, it engages what in Mark's uh, talk is, why, you know, when do you jump off the cliff? In this, so that I would argue that all action under uncertainty is a bit like jumping under the cli- off the cliff, if you actually think you're jumping off the cliff, you won't do it, mostly. But if you've got a good conviction narrative, which is you know, like you've got a parachute, fine, which you think is working, uh, etc. So conviction narratives create a sufficient subjective feeling of certainty and accuracy to generate expectations and to act. And of course, they also can be used in a group setting to bring other people along with you. So, for example, if, if you are the head of one of these large companies, you know, actually, from the start, that not only do you have to get a story, a narrative, to cover what your company's going to do for yourself, but it also has to keep the rest of the directors, the other people in the company, the shareholders, and everybody else all behind it. So you will find an awful lot of conviction narratives in the economy. Okay, now... What conviction, narrative, what conviction narratives draw on are human capacities that have adaptively evolved in human bodies. So there are concepts such as embodied cognition that uh, uh, have been put forward in the last, I think it's all in the last uh, 20 years, most of this work, 
mental time travel, the concepts of embodied narratives, where, you, where and these are the things that allow you, so to speak, metaphorically what's happening when you tell a narrative of the future is that you're literally putting your body, so to speak, out into the future and at some level experiencing those feelings of how nice or how horrible as you as you unfold it for yourself or for others. So this would be the supporting ideas. And through embodiment, different cognitive elements in the stories that people stim- simulate as they read, imagine or listen, separately evoke approach or avoidance conditions. Mark has already uh, said, which is fundamental to what I'm saying, that pleasure and unpleasure are on two different dimensions, and there's quite a lot of experimental work supporting that. And that's fundamental to, to what I'm saying. So that, in other words, these things, under uncertainty, it's never can never be resolved. It is fundamentally, un- because the two things are there. But what you can do, as the story is unfolded, it can evoke feelings of approach or avoidance in the different elements. So, for instance, if someone's got a plan which involves... A, uh, a similar plan to what you've heard that has been successful somewhere else, it will tend to make you think, oh yes, I know, yes, that's how it works. And so there, there are lots of these kind, kind of things that are involved inside a narrative. So that it produces the overall effect that the outcome of whatever is the preferred action that's chosen both feel and are thought accurate and desirable. And overall, there are quite a lot of factors, I won't go into this, but there's an awful lot of uh, uh, study, of, which in fact is where a lot of the traditional psychology is very useful, is it's demonstrated, as they think of it, as lots of biases in the way humans uh, think about problems. But for example, if you tell someone, uh, if, you, if, you give, if you give someone some facts, just raw, or you give them in a story, people will tend to do much better within the story. If you give someone a proposition which is beautifully set out and nicely and simply done compared to one that's a mess, even though there's no difference in the information between the two, people will be very convinced that the one is not very intelligent and the other one is very intelligent. So there are lots of these effects which all, I think, are influencing and and are working precisely because we operate with with conviction narratives. Okay. So I'm not going to tell you, just switch to something completely different, and I hope you find it interesting. Okay, so we have this theory, and there's a lot more to this theory, and you can read all about it if you want to, but that I've just given you the bare outlines. What I now want to talk about is the way we operationalize it, because it's fundamental not just to have clever ways of thinking about economics in a different way, but to actually show that that matters and it can make a difference. So we have developed something called directed algorithmic text analysis, we being my uh, several of my colleagues, including some computer scientists. And this is essentially a way of measuring in any, griv- uh, any given uh, number of texts shift in the relationship between approach and avoidance emotions in those texts. So clearly there's a lot more to narratives than just emotion, but part of the point we learn from this theory is that if we just focus on the approach and avoidance, uh, that was the, the, the idea we had, the hypothesis, we might be able to say something. 
So we develop a method. It can apply to any unstructured text uh, database as long as the uh, texts are dated. We've applied it so far to three completely different document sets. Uh, the Reuters News Archive, is, I mean, we're talking about large numbers of uh, documents, 2.2 million uh, f- from the US, 1.8 from the UK. To brokers' reports, those are financial analysts writing about the success and otherwise of companies. That series comes to the Bank of England. And a daily internal market commentaries that the bank staff make every day. So every day, someone in, in the bank has to write up what they think about uh, the, the current uh, conditions. And it's quite useful that we've used different uh, uh, things because I, I can go into details if anyone's interested, but we use exactly the same methods whatever the database. There's a lot of machine learning approaches to this type of problem which optimize the methodology of measurement to the particular database. With the result, you take it to another database, it doesn't work. The current one measures the two emotion groups simply with word lists and with no weighting. So we have words which we think will evoke the experience of approach or avoidance. We've done some testing of that in in standard psychology labs. began really with a clinical judgment. And it's probably not a perfect list. It's probably not a complete list. But as you'll see, it works quite well. And... We're only looking at these two particular emotions because one of the things is that the the whole literature on emotion is very complicated and muddled because there isn't really a satisfactory theory about about emotion or you have to be clear why you want to know about it. We've focused on approach or avoidance because we're trying to explain action, essentially jumping over the cliff or not. We're not trying to explain other things. So things like anger... Could have all, you know, they could, if, if you get angry, that could cause you to act to either avoid or. So, one of the ways, I, reasons I think this works is because we've got the clear theory, we only focus on these emotions and not lots of others. Whereas, and we've actually only got 150 words, English words in each list, so it's not very many. The other projects are using like 3,500 words, which time you're not quite sure what they're measuring. Creates a time series. And then it allows very powerful statistical uh, analysis. So, here, just to give you a quick idea, this is the what we call the RSS series done on the Bank of England daily reports. And what we've done here is we've taken uh, approach, that is exciting words, and then we've taken away uh, avoidance, that is anxiety-provoking words, and so when the thing goes down, it means there's an increase in anxiety relative to excitement. When it goes the other way, there's an increase, increase of excitement relating. And what you see between 2001 and 2010, it's changing around quite a bit. We can then impose on it some key events that occurred during that period. And you see that makes sense. So that, so that uh, you see the dot-com bust there, where it says dot-com low. That's at the point at which suddenly anxiety came into the system. You see this big fall here, which is the, the global financial crisis. Now, in fact, just to show you here, this is... Uh, we put another series on there. That's the broker reports. And you see that a different series is producing at least the same kinds of variations 
And there's the third, those are the, those are all three of them. I'll just show you that there. One interesting finding we've had is that here is the one I showed you before. These are the uh, Bank of England's uh, reports. And we've, that has been inverted actually, just so, so as we can show here. This is the VIX. The, the VIX is a entirely uh, statistically based, that is on actual things that are happening in, in, in the markets, uh, way of capturing what is popularly known as the fear index. And you see here that what we have collected from a completely different methodology is quite obviously quite closely correlated with it. And in fact, uh, no, in fact, I've left the slide out, but in fact, there is, uh, there's a statistical method of looking at the relationship between two series, which is called Granger causality, in which you first look at the relationship between the series in one direction and then at the other to try to decide which is leading which. And in fact, the, the report in these, uh, in, in the market reports, the shift in emotion that, that, that is in the market reports comes somewhat ahead of the changes in the VIX. Here, <coughs> there's another interesting thing. <coughs> so, the survey of professional forecasters where in the States, one of the parts of the Federal Reserve System sends out to a whole bunch of professional economists what do they think is going to happen to the economy in the next uh, next quarter, and then they put it together and make a consensus forecast. It's the oldest way of forecasting the U.S. Uh, GDP, and the the one period ahead forecasts look something like that. So they're predicting these things to happen. Uh, sorry, sorry, I didn't explain that well. That is GDP. So that that is that is the variations in GDP in the U.S. So you see, one of the things about the economy that's that it moves around quite a lot. And again, there's the global financial recession. If we put onto that, these are the uh, forecasts of the uh, people I mentioned, and you'll see that there's some connection. The economic forecasts are not completely useless, but they are not terribly good. And one of the reasons for that is GDP is a very complicated thing to understand and to measure. And one of the things you also probably know is that what the GDP of any country is today will not actually be even able to be guessed at with any accuracy for 12 months. This is because the, they collect the figures up from what's happening all over the economy, which you can see makes it very, very difficult for a central bank to decide are we going to put the interest rates up or down so not very sure what's actually happening now. So uh, that, that there's... Now, when we add our measure, that is this RSS measure, to the, um, uh, uh, the forecast, there is some improvement. It's a significant improvement of 38%, in fact, just by adding in this emotional information. So I'll give you some idea of what's possible here. I'll just give you a few more. Here is another series which is between the RSS and US GDP, in which we, you can see, um, you can see that the, uh, RSS series starts turning there, and it starts turning very much down here, right? Now it wiggles about a bit. But 
it's possible to have said in this period that the RSS series was behaving very differently than it had been in the preceding period. So it was actually 4.37 deviations below the mean value in, the, in that previous period. And what we think that has the potential be, for being used for is as an early warning that things are about to change. And you'll see here that if you, if you go from uh, that moment where it would have been clear from the statistics there had been a change, it was well ahead of that moment there because zero is when the uh, GDP went into um, uh, negative territory. And it's interesting because, in fact, until December 2008, all the world's central banks were still forecasting that the economy was going to grow not as fast but slower. Whereas, in fact, we now know it actually went into recession before the Lehman Brothers' failure. So this would perhaps have given you some guidance on that. And lastly, I think it's lastly, is another thing is interesting to predict is the St. Louis Financial Stress Index. This is something that the St. Louis Fed has developed to tr- because economists didn't do very well at forecasting the crisis. They got a new stress index which is supposed to do it. Well, it, you can see there, and again, that one, I think I've got the statistics here, that when you look at the relationship between the two series, the first is does the St. Louis thing cause the RSS or does the RSS cause the St. Louis? This is a very clear statistical relationship that the RSS is causal. Because one of the things you have to worry about when you're doing this is, is the increase in anxious words in Reuters news the outcome of the economy already going wrong or is it somehow a prediction? So you have to, that's why you need to, uh, to look at it around this way. But uh, all of that is evidence of the possible value of looking at what is happening emotionally to decision making. It's clearly not rocket science. All you're picking up is what lots of people are writing about in news. But when there's lots and lots of articles, it's hard to aggregate the information. So all this does is pick it up by looking at it in a different way than people haven't before. This is something slightly different. Here, we look at uh, the Reuters News Archive, but instead of looking at all the articles, we just look at the articles which mention liquidity. Now, for those that are not economists, liquidity is something that you'll be interested in if, if, for example, you suddenly need, shall we say, to fly to America and you don't have any money and you haven't got a credit card, then you are in an illiquid state. So liquidity is that you have reserves in case things go wrong. And traditionally, banks and other organisations discuss how much liquidity they, they need. Now, what this shows you here is that this line is meant to draw your attention to it, that between 2003 and the uh, early part of 2007, articles which were discussing liquidity had an increasing tendency to be free of anxiety and full of excitement, which suggests, or could be used to suggest, that something odd has happened, what, what I call a divided state, that instead of people discussing in a more balanced way, you know, is this 
project going to go wrong? Is this going to get etc.? People completely forgot essentially that things could go wrong. And we have a very similar finding here, which is this is the uh, RSS series, not for liquidity, but for all the articles which mentioned Fannie Mae. For those of you who don't know, Fannie Mae is the American mortgage company that originated a lot of the mortgages and, and those special mortgage instruments that were at the heart of the crisis. And here you see that in exactly the same period, that is here, the uh, Fannie Mae is increasingly discussed not in less anxious and more excited terms. Now, very interestingly, if you impose on that, that yellow line, which is the Case-Shiller Housing Index. So that is an index of what is happening to house prices in the US. Now, logically... Once house prices levelled off and started to go down, it was, would be very easy to know that there's going to be trouble in the system that had been generated. But you see here, that it made absolutely no difference to the discussion. Right? That, so this is why you might want to talk about something like a divided state, that the fundamentals were absolutely not making any difference to how people were thinking and talking and decided, until, of course this happened. So the idea is that this type of work can make a difference, can be used and is being used a bit in some of the major central banks and can provide a completely different way of trying to think about economics and uh, all the rest of it. So I'm going to stop there and I hope it was not too more. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> question. Hello, this question might seem a bit interdisciplinary, but um, I think I get the picture, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of trial and error thinking like in the what ifs that go on in economics. I'm not a I'm not an expert. But what you speculate situations, you, you then you almost try things out, you, you adjust, you make adjustments, it's sort of mathematical. But could that apply to how do you think that could apply just out of interest to sort of creativity? So you write things or to therapy and analysis where you, you know you, you imagine potential outcomes then you process them, you work out which is the best one, the best solution, you know, for your psychological situation. Do you think there's sort of interesting parallels there at all? Well, okay, so so first, the trial and error approach is kind of what we all do for everything, except that what psychoanalysis, I think it's really what Mark was saying, has shown us is that sometimes we don't really... You know, we solve a problem, but we don't solve a problem, and so the error persists. Right. So, 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 you know, there's this anxiety or something which we... So trial and error <coughs> is a sensible way to, to progress, and if you're in a situation of uncertainty or innovation creativity, yeah. there's no other way to proceed but to 
try something else and try to relate mm-hmm. to feedback. Now, there's a lot of difficulty in, for example, at what point decide, do you decide an idea is bad? So in a, in a, in a cap, the, why a capitalist economy is on the whole much more successful than a planned economy is because it allows for people to try out ideas, to start businesses, mm-hmm. and then the public don't like their business or don't want to go to their restaurant, it mm-hmm. fails. So, now, yeah, it's yeah. not always the case that only the good ideas succeed, but basically, you know, something like uh, 9 out of 10 or 8 out of 10 new businesses fail. But this, so you need this constant, if you like, conviction narratives to keep it going. Mm. In economic theory, it's not like that. So what economists do is they model the economy as that uh, uh, if you're a business, you have to act in this rational way, which means you have to you have to have a product that your customers are going to to want and as soon as you know so this is really trying to do what you've said is what seems commonsensical to you and is perhaps common sense but that's not the way people have modelled the way economic action is and one of the main reasons for that is that um, it is the case to a degree and certainly was the case in the 19th century when most of these models were developed. You had small businesses that if businesses, if businesses didn't do, you know, what other people were doing and they, you know, if, if you sort of employ 10 staff when three will do, well, you're unlikely to have much long-term future. So it's a kind of competition forces people to innovate, to do the similar thing other people. But once it starts getting more complicated than that, you don't get the feedback. Now, in finance, you don't really ever get feedback, which I could elaborate on, but the, the basic problem in finance is that what you do and what happens tend to be very disconnected. And it's, in fact, impossible to demonstrate yeah. in research that there are any skillful financiers. You can set points to people who made a lot of money. That's a different thing. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I think as well, I suddenly kept thinking of that keyword adjustment, you know, in maths, trial error adjustment. It's how you adjust to that as we're talking in psychoanalysis, but, that perfect spot. But in finance, it's very abstract. So you well, you've, you've got to have a measure signal. it so yeah. well. Yeah. You have to, you've got to have a signal to adjust. Mm. And that is then open to all the things, the feedback problems that, that we're familiar mm. with in, in yeah. our clinical okay. work. Thank you very much. There was one question, just there. Uh, I just uh, wanted to ask, uh, you know, what is the sort of, uh, is, for example, this, um, uh, what do you say, narrative CNT kind of theory, is it a sort of product of uh, Daniel Kahneman's sort of uh, impact as well about System 1 and System 2 type of thinking? No. no. Does it? Uh-huh. So where is the difference? <laughs> so let me explain the difference. So, 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 I mean, first of all, Daniel Kahneman is, is a very interesting man, and I, th- and, uh, but I think he's also very personal. And he's had a big influence, and in a way for the better. But all his theories are essentially importing standard uh, decision-making psychology into economics. So in economics, 
they simply had models and there's no empirical... I mean, it's the thing that's a bit difficult to understand, but economics is not an empirical science. It's all done by analytic modelling. So they don't then go... You know, in most, say, engineering, you create a model, then you see if your aeroplane works in the wind tunnel, then you adjust it. But economics is purely done from principles. So e- economists are very good at working out logically the impact of these assumptions on what will happen. Whether or not that is what is in the real world is, is another story. Kahneman came along with Tversky, and they uh, had all these findings which show that when you put people in, for example, a lot of the early work was on doctors, that you give doctors to make diagnoses and so on, they're full of all kinds of biases, they don't use statistics properly, they, they anchor on certain things and so on. So all this work was built up in which emotion also is seen as an interference with cognitive calculation. So the essence of the two systems is that Kahneman has a theory there's an automatic system which somehow comes from early evolution and which he says has somehow been a very effective, necessary development of human um, capacity, but which is old... And then there's a whole reflexive, a reflective system, which is system two, which is, you know, statistics and logic and what, in a way, what Mark called thinking, reflecting and so on. And that these two systems are different. And the trouble is that human beings uh, constantly operate with system one and system two is, isn't brought to bear. Now, there's, there'd be numerous efforts attempts to try and improve human beings in this respect, particularly in the investment field, they nearly all fail. And so what I'm really arguing is that, of course, if you know what... So there are a lot of situations in life where maybe we do know the correct answer, that it really... There is sort of one correct answer, and there's a correct way in which case we can talk about bias and getting it wrong and so on. Then under those situations, all that work that Kahneman and his colleagues have done is extremely useful to try and help people not to reach error. Although the main way they think it's done by designing the environment. Right? So to give you an example, people are reluctant to um, invest in pensions because they don't, fully, is it, they don't fully do the proper calculations to see what they'll need in old age. So they're seen as, you know... Pr- too present preoccupied and that's related to biology in some way in these theories so what do you do well you when someone signs on for a job you make them opt out rather than opt in because it's found that if you if if, if you're all asked to to join a pension plan and you've got to you know it's just part of getting the job then you do most people do a few people don't if you do it the other way around it's the same with uh, a you know, giving your kidney to, to 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 the nation or whatever. If you if you put an opt in, people will do it because that's one of the things people will copy other people. So have I answered the question? So the system one and system two, I am really trying to suggest we should understand in a completely different way. And you, it's all about knowing the situation. So if you're under model uncertainty, then all this stuff is completely different than if you're in a situation which is clear, where you, you know the parameters, then of course uh, those type of things are affected. 
And you'd, I'd add that why has Kahneman been so successful? Because his narrative of feelings letting you down and of humans being weak compared with computers and so forth is a very successful narrative. It's been put for years. It's the same narrative, I think, that is implicit in, in a lot of what we deal with, which is that feelings are for women and they're not the real stuff. Right? And real calculation is by men and so on. Well, we can see where that's got us, right? <laughs> but I think, I think it's exactly, exactly that type of logic, you know, that, that in a British university until around, really I think until, apart from in, in literature, of course, that's fine. But science has got nothing to do with emotion. <laughs> I was interested what happens when the narrative of the company or bank differs from the narrative of the employee or the management, as in the ethos, because the company is a narrative in itself. Mm -hmm. It's not real. The people who work there are. Um, So when you talk about the idea of shall we say, rethinking the emotions to make the decision. If the company aren't changing with that, that wouldn't mean a thing. Well, okay, so, so um, first of all, you know, there's a lot of work being done on narratives, mm. uh, and they're terribly important, and in all kinds of fields, like when you're trying to get people to stop fighting with each other or deal with conflict and so on. Trying to find a common narrative is is often what people try to do. And of course, emotion's important. So this wouldn't be an original thing for me. But the, um, the implication of these theories, if they're valuable, is that we need to understand in much more detail than presently do how narratives become uh, catch-on and how they fail, and how you can try and create them. So, to give an example, the, the, the you know, we have big problems with the European Union. Right? So, uh, you could take, a, I mean, the European Union is a system which is uh, based on the premise that there are some problems which, done together, you can do better than if you do it separately. That there are some kinds of difficulties, like how do you deal with very large companies, for example, or how do you deal with climate change, which if you can't just deal with at the individual level. So to get people behind the fact that if you join the European Union, you're also going to give things up. In other words, you won't just be able to do what you like. You'll have to do what Brussels has agreed among everyone is, is the consensus view. So that type of narrative is managing what I talk about as approach and avoidance emotions, and more knowledge of it can perhaps help to bring the issues out more clearly. So someone who's very against the European Union, like Nigel Farage, for example, is an absolute expert at knowing which bits in the narrative to attack by picking up things that are emotionally resonant, such as, you know, watch out your children this or something. You know, so, so uh, 
and in 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 finance uh the fundamentals of the of economic world do not in fact change very quickly at all you can't suddenly build lots of new factories and so on but the narratives about them can change very rapidly and so this is one of the things we need to understand is is all those processes of how narratives work thank you lots of questions <laughs> um Would you describe the divided slash schizoid paranoid state for the way Yanis Varoufakis uh, handled the Greek economic crisis since assuming power? Um, and I'm sorry if that's a trivial question. I would just I would just had in mind, you know, the rest of the world or Europe or even people in Greece saying that we should have an agreement anytime soon and a finance minister saying money can buy me love. Well that's a big question but I think <laughs> very complex question today but I suppose how I would I would look at the thing slightly different I I would say that um it is completely oh, I was about to say it's completely clear but actually you never quite know how human beings are going to react and if human beings do all react together in a particular way it really can change things so an example would be the labor party uh, leadership election where out of nowhere someone is suddenly the leader which people beforehand would have said is completely and you know had all kinds of clever people explaining why it would be impossible so there is this possibility and that can also extend even to something like the greek economic situation because at the end of the day the indebtedness of a country depends on two things the amount the actual amount of loans that are outstanding and really to foreigners is what matters and then the size of their economy so if the loans stay the same and the economy gets smaller the proportion of debt goes up similarly if it goes the other way the proportion of debt goes down so these things are nothing like as straightforward as you might think if you read the newspapers that being said the underlying problem is that the european union required i mean first of all the underlying problem is that the greeks cheated like crazy and didn't you know dis- were dishonest about their statistics and there's there's no doubt about it but the problem having arisen there is a fundamental problem that neither the european union nor anyone else want to accept which is that there's no way greek greece can pay off its current amount of debt unless its economy can grow and that what happens is exactly the opposite so the more they pay off the debt that actually means there's less money in their economy and so the thing goes that and so it's in that context that this new um party came to uh, power and tried to alter it by a combination of changing the the narrative and bluffing and uh, uh yeah so that's that that's what I'd say about it but but I don't think you can apply I mean you're all clinicians if you want to make personal uh diagnoses of different people but what I'm more interested in is trying to understand the bigger picture and how um how a fundamentally divided state narrative can persist 
for as long as it does, because the the it's, it, it has been clear since 2009 that there's going to be a problem in Greece, and now it's six years have gone by, and there's been a, you know it hasn't been addressed at all. Right? I, I mean, another very good example actually is is I didn't put it, but it's on some of those graphs. The European, the whole European crisis was solved by Mario Draghi saying, I'll do whatever it takes. Now, in fact, he couldn't have. Right? The German Constitutional Court would not have allowed him to do a whole lot of things. But it's interesting, at that stage, people, were, people being people in the fact, were so fed up with the crisis, they were willing to believe anything. And it was a highly effective statement. So these are the kind of things we need to understand better because it's no good. I think what we would say as psychoanalysts is that we need to listen to these narratives and try and understand them because it's no good saying, well, that's crazy or that wouldn't work because actually we never know what will work. No, I know, it's not what you were saying. I just had in mind that um, the clash between the the last diagram you showed about liquidity going up whereas, um, you know, something else going down. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, the, the liquidity is a clear sign. And we, this is because you can't, of course, we don't know what will be the next items of discussion which will cause all this trouble. And so it's no good looking for Fannie Mae, you know. <laughs> so, but there are ways which we're developing in which computer scientists can capture topics that are being discussed and the emotions with which they're being discussed and the shifts without knowing what those topics are, right? just doing it, so to speak, mathematically. And that can give you that these things are exhibiting that strange behaviour and that can then send people off from the Bank of England or wherever to investigate it. Right? So in this way, the fundamental argument is that when you see that type of slope, the likelihood is people are and it can happen the depressive way as well, the people are either too depressed or too excited, and this will eventually reverse. So this is fine if it's just a little bit, because that's the way an economy is. You can't. But if it's going like it is before, the cost of that error is so great that we need to try to n- notice it. I was not the first, so... Hi, I'm probably just bringing you straight back to pleasure and unpleasure. And I was looking at your graphs, and I was thinking of what Mark said earlier about pleasure and unpleasure. And possibly because I'm not a finance person, the the dips made me feel a bit relieved. Does that have something to do with uh, death, anxi- you know, death anxiety, or is it uh, because I thought sometimes that dip can be construed as unpleasure, but it sort of relieves the atmosphere, doesn't it? You, the tension of keeping it all like this, um, and then there's the dip, and and I see your point about the heightening of anxiety and how that affects uh, all these things. But sometimes I probably I come from the east. I think the idea of always not having a heightening of anxiety, not having a heightening of any pleasure or unpleasure, can cause a bigger uh, dip sometimes. Or uh, I, I don't know. 
I, I'm not a finance person, but I'm just thinking that after some time I sort of tuned out from the financial stuff that you were yeah. talking about. But you've got to be careful there because it, it all depends what one is representing with these graphs. So yes. if you're representing the world economy, a dip means a lot of people starve. And, you know, it's, and it's not... If you're representing a share price, then it's not exactly the same. But in general, I mean, one of the principles of psychoanalysis is, isn't it, that, that the working through of, towards a so-called depressive position uh, brings you to a greater sense of reality about whatever your ideas are, which actually makes you feel better even though you've come down from a lot of excitement. So I think your reaction sort of makes sense. No, no, I, I meant it that if you don't starve, you won't have a backup plan. I mean, if you don't have that threat. I, I'm probably being very brutal about it, but... If are you, you don't, well, there I, are, you mean, if, yeah. if everything's going so well, people don't think about what can go wrong. Is that yes. what you mean? Yes, I mean, is it, uh, it's a sort of philosophical thing. Does it need to happen sometimes? Well, I think you'd have to ask people like Mark this. I mean, I, I, I personally, I mean, there are these arguments. There, there, are, there are arguments in economics going back to Mankos Schumpeter, which, in, in which the economy has to purge itself from time to time. I think it had more to do with psychology than economics. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> there are more people there in the back. I think this is just a clarifying question, but I was thinking, I mean, I think your system is terrific. Um, I was thinking of the difference, the distinction between you, your approach, and Kahneman's approach. I quite see that where there's very high uncertainty, as with the markets, your system is terrific. But I assume that you would agree that there are quite a lot of situations, I mean, insurance or something. I, I, insurance? Well, which are very mixed. or <clears throat> I mean, where emotion is not irrelevant, and the divided state would be relevant, but there are a lot of sort of cognitive steps that it makes sense to oh, take. Yeah, I, so not... you can manipulate the situation. Okay, and that's a sensible well, it, thing to do, no? It, it all has to do with whether the situation is well-defined or not. So, for example, uh, if it's life insurance, it is possible to make fairly accurate estimates with a little bit of tweaking for the fact people live longer. You can more or less determine yes. what is likely to be the pattern of... You know, if you're it's, an insurer and you've, you've got to work out how much... You can more or less work out your rates based on an expected rate because humans can't suddenly start living 50 years. So there are lots of problems like that where mm. these ideas, are very Kahneman-type ideas, are relevant. But most major decisions that drive an economy are not like that. So mm. a decision like, shall, for example, shall we invest in HS2, the high-speed mm. train? Mm. Uh, sh uh, shall we invest in a new type of energy thing. I mean, uh, uh, which university should your child go to? Mm. Should you get married? Mm. Many of these types of questions are not ones which you can, and no one would think of answering except within these disciplines when they're not thinking about 
the situations. I quite see that, but I think I was thinking what a good system yours is and how it might be applicable beyond where you're seeing it at the moment. Oh, well, and, yeah. and with that in mind, I was just wondering how it applied to mixed situations. And perhaps insurance wasn't a very good example. It was just one that came to mind. Well, if, if you accept the model, the kind of model of the mind or the brain that, that Mark was putting forward, mm. then in a sense you might say we just turn the whole thing's got to be turned upside down. Mm. So, so that mm. the you know the way that decision making scientists went about things was to think about Aristotle and and the way you know and then to see if human beings <laughs> did that. Actually, you might think more start as really what. Uh, I did was, and Keynes did, which said, "Well, how on earth do people manage to act at all?" <laughs> yes, yes, that's really a, a good thought. There's one more question here, and then that'll be the last one. So please, both of you, keep it quick. Yeah, it's just this idea that. If feelings or emotions, sorry, this idea that if feelings and emotions are to be taken into consideration, isn't the problem whose feelings and whose emotions and who we are who are listening to the feelings and emotions that then either create the spin or the... How do you make a decision? You can well, you individually make... on on in the case of your own feelings and emotions, but if it's a... It be, yeah. But I, I'm not arguing, uh, we're not arguing that decisions should be made only on feelings. No, no, I should We're saying that, that calculations, spreadsheets and everything else, which you should, if you're making a decision which requires that sort of information, you've got to have. It's no good saying, oh, heads, tails, <laughs> whether, I'll, whether I'll take a mortgage of £200,000 or something. You've got to have your, but what we're saying is that at the same time as this cognitive activity is taking place, Feelings are being engaged, and ultimately, uh, people think, yes, I'll do it, or no, I won't. And that involves a, co- a constant coming together of co- cognitive and emotional right. uh, elements. So the challenge of feeling again. Yeah, and, and obviously each person makes, I mean, in, in, we think of each person makes, a, and you've got to decide for yourself what you think is, is, is the thing to do. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, when we're dealing with the aggregates, We've got all these second order or whatever we call them phenomena in which how you think and talk will influence other people. Mm. Uh, and, and the whole point about group feel is that people stop thinking for themselves and instead become terribly preoccupied, as Bion put it, with feeling comfortable with the other people. And then, you know, when they're thinking of going to war in Iraq or something, nobody says anything. They're all completely convinced, apparently, that, uh, you know, what is, what's his name's got his weapons. <laughs> so, so... Um, That's exactly what I'm saying, then. Yeah. Whose feelings do we listen to? Well, no, you don't listen to anybody's feelings. You, you look at the arguments. But in arguments. order to make a decision, I, I see yeah. what, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, thank you very much to both our speakers. <laughs>